you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night to gather together as your people, as men and women made in your image and likeness. And we pray, Lord God, that now as your spirit moves, would you unveil our eyes in accordance with your word that we might see Jesus, that we might know the one who is, who was, and is to come. Be at work now, we pray, for our good, for your glory. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen, amen. Wonderful to be with you, City on a Hill. How are we all doing tonight? Good. Who's excited for the launch of Revelation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All day we have been joining live via broadcast with uh, City on a Hill churches in Brisbane, uh, in Melbourne East, Melbourne West, uh, with our service in Docklands, with Surf Coast and Gold Coast. Great to be with you. Uh, so, a few weeks ago, it's, it's a Thursday afternoon, and I'm exploring Cape Shank. Uh, if you're not from Victoria, uh, Cape Shank is an amazing part of the world, uh, rolling hills, huge cliff faces, swirling ocean. And I'm there with my wife uh, and our four kids, uh, and it's blisteringly hot. It's just one of these scorching summer's days, and so we spend about three, four hours in the ocean exploring our rock pools, and at 4 p.m. we decide enough's enough, uh, we better get the kids home and take the long trek back. And I say long trek because uh, it involved something like a 300-meter walk across the beach before we kind of scale this high staircase to the top of the cliff, then you need to take a 2.7-kilometer walk down a windy, thin road towards the Cape Shank car park. And so Vanessa, my wife, turns to me and says, you look after Lily, right, and, and I'll take the bag, the beach bag. So she takes the beach bag, runs on ahead, and I'm at the back here with my three-year-old daughter, Lily. And, and we're having a good time. We're walking by the water's edge. We're kicking it. We're hanging out. We're having fun. And then we make the walk uh, to the bottom of the staircase, at which point Lily starts screaming, ouchie, ouchie, ouchie. And I discover there and then that her feet, her little pint-sized feet, are burning uh, on the hot sand. And so immediately I, I pick her up and I, and I hold her like this. And, and it's at this moment that I, I realize, wow, she's a lot heavier than I, I, I imagined, but not only that, my own feet, my own feet are burning. And then I have a thought. My blessed sacred thongs are in the beach bag. And who has the beach bag? Vanessa. And where is she? She's run ahead. And so I said, hold on, Lily. We've got to climb this staircase fast, right? And so I'm going up this staircase. My feet are burning. I'm charging up. But there's people everywhere, Right, there's slow walkers just chatting in front of me, taking in the scenery. There's people, oncoming traffic. I've got to navigate the whole time. I'm trying to keep my focus on Vanessa and her blonde ponytail kind of bouncing up ahead. I turn left, I turn right, I look up, and she's gone. And it's in this moment that the frustration begins to mount. I'm frustrated uh, that, that my feet are burning. I'm frustrated that I'm holding 15 kilos of child. I'm frustrated. I can't catch my own wife. And so I get to the top and I say, Lily, strap yourself in. I've got a Usain Bolt right now and catch her. Catch her quick. I'm toast. Right? So I leap down this path and look, I'm giving it my everything. Every ounce of energy I had left, I'm giving it my all. I'm jumping. I'm leaping. I'm going, I'm pouring everything out. And it's one minute, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes of intense running. And then who do I see? No one. <laughs> Just an empty scene. Eventually, this couple casually walking the other way comes past. And I'm like, excuse me, do you know how much further to the Cape Shank car park? And they're like, Cape Shank car park? Oh, no, no, this path goes to the Cape Shank lighthouse. If you want the Cape Shank car park, you'd have to have made a different turn all the way back at the top. Instead of going left, you should have gone right. Oh, thanks so much for letting me know. Right, And so I'm just exhausted at this point. All my energy is poured out. Lily, who's in my arms, is now screaming on the top of her lungs, I want mummy, I want mummy. To which I say to her, I want mummy, I want mummy. 
And I'd love to tell you at this point that things just got easier. The road became clear. It didn't. You know, I found the right path, but for 2.7 Ks with burning feet, I am stuck in this nauseating cycle of physical frustration, right? And, and I'm just rotating from one area of pain to the other. Like my arm is dead and I'm rotating Lily on either side just to hold up. Uh, the sun is still beating down. I'm sweating from head to toe. I've got no water. Every five steps, I just manage to jam my foot on like a rogue rock and sharp edge. And the sweetener, oh, the sweetener in all of this was a blessed thing called chafe. <laughs> like how many of you know that Wonderful experience, that combination of wet board shorts and sand rubbing at your inner thigh until they're red, raw, bloody mess, right? So, so every, not only is every step painful, but now I'm walking like a drunken cowboy, right? Now, so here's my question. In that moment, you're on this road with me, so to speak. What is it that you need... <laughs> What helps you keep going? What, the, what is it that, that gives you the strength to put one foot in front of the other to keep going? What helps you move forward? Well, let me tell you what didn't help for me. It didn't help to point the finger of blame. Right? Like it was really tempting to point the finger at my wife, Vanessa, and go, Oh, why did she run ahead? Did she not know that she had my thongs? Didn't she not know that my feet are now burning? Did she not know that I was incompetent and I would need her rescue? Right now, I could have pointed the blame. Was I tempted to say those things? Yes, I was. Did it help me go forward? Not at all. What about the thought of comparison? Because as I'm walking in excruciating pain like this, these couples are bouncing the other way. And they've got like, I don't know, water bottles and shoes on and sun hats and they're not carrying children, right? And I'm smiling and they're waving and inside, oh, I'm coveting. I'm coveting their water bottles. I'm coveting their Nike hats and their nice shoes. I'm coveting their non-child, non-chafe situation. <laughs> but does it help me move forward? No. Well, what about the path of self-pity? What if I start, you know, analyzing myself and all the things that I did wrong? Because after all, I was the moron who took the wrong path. And we all know it's helpful in life to take responsibility for your wrongs. But we also know, don't we, that if you want to move forward in life, you can't be stuck looking in the rearview mirror. So what is it that helped me move forward? What is it that helps us press on to take that next step, to keep going? It is the simple yet significant picture of the end. It's the promise that if I keep stepping forward, if I keep moving forward, despite the pain, eventually I will arrive. Eventually I'll find the car park. Eventually I'll get my hands on a cool glass of water. Eventually, I will find my thongs and put up my feet. The physical pain will be gone. It's eventually that, that I'll be home. You see, it's the picture, the vision of a future reality that enables me to endure and embrace the present frustration. City on a hill. You want to know something amazing? The reason I'm so excited for us as a church to be journeying to the book of Revelation, is because here you and I are blessed with a vision. A vision of God's kingdom, a vision of His glory, a vision of the end. Like if you want to know where the road leads, if you are finding yourself in a present struggle, wondering if it's all worth it, wondering if you can keep going, wondering if you can press on forward. Revelation is God's gift to you. Revelation is His word to a weary and wounded world. And so I want to invite you, wherever you are, to open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 1. And I have three questions to lay a foundation for this series as a whole. 
questions are this. What is Revelation? Who is Revelation for? And thirdly, why was Revelation written? So, if you're taking notes, what is Revelation? Who is Revelation for? And why was Revelation written? So, first, the first question we want to address is, what is Revelation? What is Revelation? A few years ago, Donald Trump and his election as the 45th President of the United States was described, and I, and I quote, as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I think it's fair to say that many Christians view the book of Revelation in much the same way. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, on one hand, uh, we all know and have met the Revelation junkie, the Revelation fanatic, right? They're the guy, you can see them now on the street corner selling their cassette tape series, decoding all the mystery of Revelation. They own all 16 copies of the Left Behind series. They think Miley Cyrus is the Antichrist. Thank you, one person appreciates this. And they will not shop at Coles because of all the barcodes, right? But aside from that one guy that we all know, most of us, if we're honest, like we read through this book and we're curious by it, but we find the symbols and the imagery really complex. For example, uh, we can imagine a woman and we can clearly imagine the sun. But what does it mean in chapter 12 when it describes a woman clothed in the sun? Likewise, we can imagine a beast and we know what horns look like. What are we to make of a beast with ten horns, seven heads, that is full of eyes? The great reformer John Calvin wrote and preached on pretty much every single book of the Bible except Revelation. And after reading this a bunch of times, I think I know why. So what is Revelation? Look with me to the very first paragraph. Read this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Near. So, we learn here that Revelation is written by a servant of Jesus named John. Now, is this John who wrote the fourth gospel in the New Testament? Or could this be a different John, another servant of Christ who roamed around in the first century and gave messages to the early church? We can't be sure, but either way, uh, he's described to us as a servant of Christ. And he has given you and I clues to help us understand what Revelation is. Is For example, you might like to under, underline the word prophecy in verse 2. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, throughout, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God chooses uh, men and, and women to be His prophets. Hosea, Jeremiah, Deborah, they were chosen by God to proclaim God's message. And in most cases, their prophecies included foretelling as well as foretelling. That is to say, they, they, they gave God's word concerning current affairs and current events, as well as pointing God's people to the horizon ahead. And what's crucial to remember about prophecy is that the focus is less on the prophets themselves and the one who gives the message, which is why it's important to note that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it has come from Jesus. So when you're reading Revelation, when you're gathering here tonight, when you discuss it in your gospel communities, remember that this is not man's speculation about the world. It's God's revelation to the world. God's revelation to us. Right? And that word revelation is also one worth underscoring, because in the ancient Greek, which it was originally written in, the word is apocalypsis. And that word literally means to unveil. It means to 
reveal. So for me, my mind goes straight to a rock concert, right? And, and you're there with a crowds of people, you know, waiting for your band. And, you know, like there's thousands of people and the atmosphere is building. And then you start hearing the rumbling of the drums and the lights go out. And then, boom, the curtain drops, the crowd goes wild, and it's there, what we've been waiting for. There's a sense in which John is dropping the curtain that we might see the kingdom of God in all of its glory and its splendor. And interestingly, one of the things about apocalyptic writing, uh, which was quite common at this time in history, is that it almost always uses imagery that is highly charged, deeply symbolic, and often very subversive. Very subversive. You know, much like uh, art and alternative music that we listen to today, uh, the imagery seeks to challenge worldly power and corruption. It invites us to reimagine the world and ask big questions about what is right and wrong, what is true from what is false. Uh, last year, a mate and I went and saw the movie Joker. And uh, I should say it's quite violent before you go out and watch it if you haven't seen it. Uh, it is quite violent, but a stunning performance by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who plays Arthur Fleck, this you know, struggling, failed comedian who's laughed at on the stage by you know, those he cares about. He's mocked by the world around him, and he spirals down into this nihilism which kind of sparks this countercultural revolution. And one of the things I like about the movie is the way it has you asking questions. You know, there's flashbacks and flash forwards and things going on and dialogue, and you're, you're kind of walking out asking big questions about it all. And um, Phoenix was actually uh, explaining in an interview that he took his two sisters to the premiere uh, in LA, and afterwards they kind of go back to his apartment and, and they just get in this big kind of discussion about the meaning of the, the movie. You know, one sister's like adamant. She's like, oh, didn't you see the symbol on the door and the number of that and how that pointed to this and what that means is that, right? And then the other sister's like, no, 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 no. How do you know that's even real? Because the Joker said this and then he went and did that, right? And so they're going, Joaquin Phoenix is sitting in the middle of both of these sisters as they debate this meaning out and they eventually turn to him and say, which one is it? To which he laughs and casually says, whichever one you want, <laughs> whichever one you want, right? And it's, it's so frustrating, but that's art. Creative art invites you in and, and gets you to consider and, and to explore and to look at things from every angle. This is in part what I love about Revelation. The imagery, the artwork draws you in and gets you thinking, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that Revelation is a postmodern experience that is not anchored in any truth. I'm not saying that. This is God's Word, God's truth. It's truth. But it is a truth revealed to us with pictures. With pictures. So rather than expecting spoon-fed answers, you know, like most Hollywood movies are spoon-fed, here's the bottom line, you know, like rather than that, we've we got to go to the Scriptures looking at the flash forwards and the flashbacks and, and asking questions and, and wrestling it out in our gospel communities and seeking the Lord for His truth. Ask big questions. Share what you are seeing and seek the Lord. It's an amazingly wild and wondrous book. Revelation is prophetic, it's apocalyptic, but it's also a letter. It's a letter written to real people at a real time in history. This leads to our second question, who is Revelation for? So in verse 4, check this out, go with me now, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now we will meet uh, these seven churches next week, and we'll explore their story in, in, in greater detail. But it must be said tonight that these were not the only churches that existed in the first century. So why does he identify seven churches? Well, it's helpful to know that in the Bible, the number seven represents completeness, perfection. If you think to creation, 
Uh, here God establishes for us a seven-day week. If you think to the book of Judges and Joshua, who walks around Jericho, he's commanded to walk around the city how many times? Seven times. When Jesus is counseling Peter on how to deal with difficult people who betray you, he says to him, you need to forgive 70 times seven. And this is actually why some Christians like to think of the number 777 as representing the perfect trinity. And why in Revelation we come across 666, because it's like a counterfeit, an imperfect trinity. Uh, Fun fact, I once was on my Facebook account and uh, discovered that, that a friend of Facebook on Facebook had gone through pretty much every post I'd ever made and started writing all of these offensive and vulgar statements. Right? Every single post, he just like meticulously went through them all, saying these really grotesque things about Jesus and my Christian faith. And so I'm like, what do you do? I'll delete that post, and I'll delete that post, I'll delete that post. You know what? I'll just delete this guy altogether. Let's just block him from Facebook. You ever deleted anyone? A few hands. Well done. It's a fun experience. True story, in the land of Facebook, I then discovered that he was my 666th friend. (laughs) True story. True story. So seven. I don't know who my 777th friend is, but uh, you've been very nice to me. Thank you. Um, seven churches, right? So, so yes, when we read Revelation, recognize that, that he's speaking to the complete perfect in Christ, the complete people of God, uh, that it speaks to all Christians. It speaks to us. But when it comes to understanding the meaning of Revelation, uh, we have to anchor this book first and foremost in the context, the historical context that it was written, right? So the seven churches are real churches, real communities made up of real men and women facing real questions about the world that they are living in, right? So in verse 9, John says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the what? The tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island Patmos on account of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. By way of background, John is writing at a time when the Roman Empire dominated the world. Like, they just dominated the world in just incredible ways. Their kingdom spanned 5 million square kilometers, which today is like 20 times the size of the United Kingdom. Their population engulfed Almost 40% of the world's total, which in our metrics would amount to something like 3 billion people. And of course, as many of you know, their conquest was brutal. They were, str- they, they were fierce. They, they valued violence. It was a virtue. And so they leveled cities. They burnt and torched families. They enslaved thousands, if not millions of people. And the emperors of Rome, the ones at the top of the hierarchy, the ones who sat on the throne, not only governed the empire and dictated where it would go next, they were literally worshipped as gods. So in 92 AD, which is roughly around the time most people think Revelation was penned, uh, Domitian was the emperor in Rome, and he was uh, a somewhat insecure, narcissistic kind of guy who wanted everyone to worship him and kneel before him. Uh, he, he, he had the audacity to rename the Roman Empire the Eternal Empire. And he had the audacity to call himself the Everlasting King. And so the citizens of Rome were required to bend the knee and cry out, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. They would have these little services in your business. So if you imagine your university or the neighborhood, uh, there was temples set up and altars laid out, and it was required for everyone to cry out, Caesar is Lord, which 
if you're a Roman citizen, is not a big deal. It's a polytheistic society. There are many different gods. And so who cares if you worship that god on this day and you worship Caesar the next day? It doesn't really matter. But what if you're a Christian? What if Jesus is your Lord? What if you won't bow the knee to the eternal kingdom of Rome? A good friend of mine and historian, John Dixon, uh, sent me uh, a letter from a a man named Pliny, who was a uh, Roman governor seeking advice from the emperor on how to deal with suspected Christians. This is what the letter originally in Latin said. For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. This is the world you live in. It's a brutal and bloody world if you're a Christian. Of course, it must be said uh, that not all Christians remained true to Christ in this season. Yes, of course, there were some uh, who, who, who were courageous in this time, who fought the fort, who kept running, who kept pressing forward. But then there were others who compromised. We need to appreciate and remember and, and see that, that Rome was not just a, a towering and menacing force. It was also a place that flaunted its prosperity and promiscuity. An empire that would people in. And so whilst you have in the book of Revelation words of encouragement to those who are running the race, you also have words of rebuke to believers who are complicit now with the oppressive system. And so at this point, I hope you can see how relevant Revelation is for you and me. Because like Rome, we who are part of City on a Hill must contend with the dual pressures of suffering and seduction. You will face in your life, if you are a Christian, trial and temptation. And you must choose between the path of fear or faith? Will you be a person of courage or compromise? Will you bend the knee to the lords of this age or will you worship the Lord of all? This leads to the third and final question for tonight. We've considered the what, the who. Let's look at the why. Why was Revelation written? Uh, I've been reading and rereading Revelation the last few weeks, and it occurs to me that one of the unique contributions of this book is how it drops the curtain and reveals for us the true face of darkness, the true nature of evil. Um, To the naked eye, Rome was stunning walking through, I mean, tourists would come from everywhere. It was where you would want to be. Amazing uh, buildings, incredible architecture, all of these signs and symbols and statues and parades, lifting up the splendor of this eternal empire they called Rome. The book of Revelation deliberately uses these provocative and powerful and enlarged images to Christians reimagine the world as it is, to see reality, to see the truth behind the the gold and the glitter. For example, in chapter 17, we see a woman. At first, she might be seen as the goddess of Rome in all her splendor and glory, but in her unveiling that is revelation, she's imagined as a Roman prostitute who rides the beast. She gains her power and wealth through the deceit, dishonesty, and deception. 
And in this way, the Lord is wanting them to look beyond the glitter of Rome, to recognize her true character, her true intent, to see her corruption, to see her violence, to see her propaganda, to see her trickery. And while the time would come for Rome to fall, it is important for you and I tonight to recognize that the powers and principalities that were at work then are the same powers and principalities that are at work today, seeking to woo you, seeking to draw you in, seeking to seduce you. To me, it brings to mind the uh, classic kids' book, Pinocchio. Uh, You remember reading this as a kid? Um, Incredible story. You know, here's this, this little wooden boy who's given life and the opportunity of becoming a real boy, and he's promised to become a real boy uh, as long as he can kind of be mature and, and take responsibility and not lie and not cheat and not be unselfish, which is, of course, hard for him to do. It's hard for us, for any of us to do that in our world today. And this is kind of punctuated with a story, uh, um, a scene in, in the story, where he's tricked into going to Pleasure Island. He goes to Pleasure Island because he's promised this this dream life, and he packs on in with all these other boys, and there's eight donkeys riding them through toward Pleasure Island, and it's at Pleasure Island that he can do everything that a little boy wants to do. He can play pool, they can smoke, they can gamble, they can get into fights, they can break bottles, there's no cops around, there's no parents around. It's like independent freedom, uh, 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 hedonism, all in one. It's a dream for him come true. Of course, five months at Pleasure Island, he wakes up and discovers that he has the ears of a donkey and a tail. Before long, his whole body is changed. Before long, he's got these teeth and, and a snout, and, and all of a sudden, they, they, they start losing their own voice. They no longer can speak. They no longer can def, uh, defend themselves. They can no longer stand on their two feet, but are reduced to all fours. And so they're kind of herded up together and sold to a salt mine or a circus. It's not just that they lose their freedom, it's that they lose their humanity. There is a sense in which this is the warning of Revelation. We each have our different visions and our different versions of Pleasure Island. Uh, Different visions in our imagination of what we believe makes us human. What we believe will make us come alive. What we believe will make us happy. What we believe will make us significant. What we believe will make us free. And our world is full right now of all kinds of images and all kinds of statues and numbers and buildings and billboards and logos that seek to fuel that vision, to fashion that vision, to draw us in, to get us onto Pleasure Island. But then you read the book of Revelation, which slaps you across the face and says, wake up. Wake up. Recognize that behind the curtain, behind the glitter and gold, there are powers and there are principalities seeking to deceive you. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. The cosmic powers. There is a harlot. There is a dragon. There is a beast. And this counterfeit trinity, is not only seeking to wage war against the church, they want to draw you in and mark you out. I mean, what is the mark of the beast that we read about? What is the mark of the beast that people constantly talk about? Is it some random tattoo that we're going to have to get on our foreheads? Is it a demonic Fitbit that we're all going to wear? Or is it, is it that we are going to be we're going to lose our humanity instead of being 
transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We're being conformed more and more into the image of the world. Instead of standing as we were made to stand, we find ourselves like a creature, like a beast on all fours. How does one stand? How does one stand firm in the midst of an intimidating opponent? By ensuring that your eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus. And setting your eyes on Jesus. Did you note the first three words of this book? The revelation of Jesus. Now, there's a sense in which it's saying that this revelation has come from Jesus, but there's also a sense in which it's saying this is a revealing, an unveiling, a curtain-dropping moment that you would now see Jesus, that you would see Jesus, that above all the images, the, the priests, uh, the priest, the prostitute, the harlot, the empires with the ten horns, that you would see over and above all else, Jesus reigning, ruling, supreme over everything. I mean, ask yourself, what does a bruised and battered church need most of all? What does the weary and worried world need more than anything else? Jesus. We need a true and right vision of who Jesus is. And that is what makes Revelation so stunning. Can I invite you to do something right now, whether in Melbourne or Geelong, wherever you are, I want to invite you right now, where you are, just to close your eyes. Close your eyes, and I want you to take a moment to visualize this image we have in Revelation 1. John says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can open your eyes. Incredible. Stunning. Here is Jesus reigning in his glory. Here is Jesus looking at you tonight with eyes like a flame of fire, a mouth like a two-edged sword, the sword in the Bible, a reference to truth, that when Jesus speaks, He doesn't speak a truth. He is the truth, cutting away at deception, looking through the mask, knowing you personally and perfectly. He is the one in the long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That is to say, he is the reigning, ruling king who stands in glory and a face like the sun shining in full strength. But to see Jesus is to be met with warmth. It's to be met with infinite beauty. It is to see light and life as it was intended to be. Is it no wonder that we read in verse 17 that when John saw Jesus, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. How wonderful it is to hear the word of Christ. How wonderful it is for the reigning and ruling king to stretch out his arm and place it on your shoulder. And in the midst of your worry, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of you feeling alone, in the midst of you being uncertain, feeling unsafe, to have him place his arm on your shoulder and say, fear not, fear not, I have died, but I am alive forevermore. 
This is the Jesus we know. This is the Jesus we trust. And this is the Jesus we must look to. November last year, uh, my wife and I were holidaying with our children in New South Wales. And towards the end of our holiday, we began to notice that the sky changed. The blue sky became a sky filled with smoke. And you could smell it. Walking outside was like walking near a fireplace. And the sun got darker and darker. And we were flipping the newspapers and trying to work out what was going on to discover that some significant bushfires had engulfed parts of New South Wales and these headlines hitting us, Armageddon and all of this terrifying stuff. And so here we are in New South Wales. We decided to kind of pack the kids up early to make the long 17-hour drive home. And for a start, the journey's clear and fine, and yet the more we got into the journey, the more the smoke could be felt and seen and smelt. And we arrive at this town, Tari, a beautiful little town that was devastated, one of the earliest towns to be devastated by the fires. 150 homes destroyed, three people killed. And we're arriving there, and it's like 7 30, 8 o'clock at night. It's getting dark. There's no cars on the road. It's an eerie quietness. Almost all the shops um, are closed. There's a few firefighters standing, looking exhausted, readying themselves for their next battle. The trees, just all black and darkened. You could see embers at the bottom of these trees. And the thing that stood out to me most were the signs. The signs on the side of the road. The signs that were intended to guide you forward were blackened, burnt, bent out of shape. And as you and I know, those signs were pointing us forward to a much greater devastation. That in the weeks and the months that followed, our country just torn apart by these devastating flames. Uh, 18.6 million hectares burned. 2,100 homes destroyed. Reports that as many as half a billion animals affected, millions killed and injured, more than 20 people tragically died in New South Wales, five in Victoria and three in South Australia. Tragic, serious, massive. And day by day, you and I, we were hit with those images, weren't we? And yet they weren't the only images we saw. In the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the darkness, we also saw courage. Men and women, firefighters, ordinary people doing what they could to push back the flames. We saw generosity, people arm in arm, digging deep to help out in the situation. And indeed, we saw signs of life. This photo was taken uh, from one of the national parks, blackened trees, burnt, but a small flower now (laughs) breaking through. It's a picture of Rebirth and restoration, it's a picture that points us forward with hope. When we read Revelation, we see a lot of darkness. We see a lot of things burnt and bent and broken. And in many ways, that is a picture of the reality that we experience today. There is devastation There's persecution in the church. There's political strife among those in power. There's the left battling the right, the right battling the left. There's ongoing bushfires. There's terrorist attacks. There's devastating news of a virus sweeping through China and beyond. In the midst of this, let us keep our eyes on Jesus Let us weep with those who weep, and let us keep our eyes on Jesus, trusting that in Him 
this life. To the world, like this little flower, Jesus might seem small and insignificant. But when you open the book of Revelation and allow the curtain to drop and see Jesus for who he is, you see the reigning one. You see the ruling one. You see the one who has rescued us all in his life, death, and resurrection. You see the one who comes to renew and restore and to bring us home. Do you see as the world sees? Or do you see what John sees? Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't yield to trial or temptation. Push back the darkness with light and set your eyes on Jesus, the one who is, who was, and is to come. Let's stand and go to our King in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glory and your majesty. Pour out your spirit. Fill us with your grace, your truth, your life, and your hope. Give us eyes to see the wonder of heaven. Enlarge our hearts to worship him. Increase our strength. Give us the faith we need. Give us the courage we need. Give us the hope we have. We love you, Lord, and we want to live for you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Let's respond to our King now by lifting our hands, our hearts, and our voices in praise to him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.